Hi everyone, and welcome to Fine Vines and Wine. I'm your host, Karis Pixie, and each week I'll be giving you all an insight into the behind the scenes of our favorite beverage, wine. I'd love for you to use this podcast platform as a winery guide for your next weekend away, exploring everything Australia has to offer. You never know, you might discover a new spot or two to visit. I acknowledge the Cadigal and the Duringa peoples, traditional custodians of the land that we recorded today's podcast episode on. I pay my respects to the elders past, present and emerging, for they hold the memories, the traditions, the cultures and hopes of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples across the nation. On this episode of Fine Vines and Wine, I'm joined by Raj, owner of Sustainable Silos Estate. Welcome and thank you for joining me today. How's the beginning of your week been? Uh, well, here we go in in 2021, a year where we hope it'll be a little bit different to 2020 for a whole bunch of reasons. Mm. So the week's been great and the year's been great so far too. Oh, perfect. That's amazing. Um, we'll jump straight into some questions. How long have you been working in the wine industry? Well, look, uh, my girlfriend, or now my wife and I, we moved to the country about 14 years ago and uh, with a vast knowledge of drinking wine, we decided to go into the wine industry. So I'm not sure if that made us overqualified or underqualified. <laughs> I'm pretty sure underqualified. Uh, but yeah. we've been working in the industry for about 14 years. Oh, wow, that's ages. So have you always been interested in what, I guess, in drinking wine? And then what made you want to buy a winery and sort of work in this full time? Look, if, if it was to be fairly, you know, completely honest, we would say that we were really looking for a lifestyle change from our corporate careers. I used to be in mm. financial services in, in, in American Bank. My wife was a lawyer and we were looking for something a little bit different, particularly to raise our children in the country. So moving to the country, it made a lot of sense to kind of start living off the land and, and we then moved into the wine industry a little bit by accident, but but a really nice accident too. There was a brief period where we were looking at leaving our corporate careers. We actually came to a, a restaurant nearby uh, before my wife was posted overseas for a number of months discussing the important things that one does when one is late in a relationship, thinking about getting mm-hmm. married. And then after she returned, she said, you're right, we should do something else. What do you think we should do? And I said, why don't we move to the place where we had dinner at? And that was the extent of our due diligence. But here yep. we are 14 years later. Amazing. No, I love Silos Estate as well. So it's such a lovely story. Um, how did you find the winery to buy? Was it just something, was it just up for sale and you were researching or? Look, I think uh, at the time we just approached the owners and said, look, do you want okay. to exit the business? And, and that was kind of how it, how it came about. Really, one should do much more research than just drinking a glass of wine. But I think lots of winemakers okay. often say that's how it comes about. Yeah, definitely. It's all about experimenting and finding out what works for you as well. What's been your most memorable moment so far? There's lots of great things. People talk about vintages and and meeting wonderful people. I I think things like adversity can really be quite quite memorable in in hindsight. We've dealt with the very Dorothy McKellar Australian, a a famous Australian poet in the 1900s, I think, and it was uh, a land of droughts and flooding rains and and that's really lots of memories around extraordinary weather events like bushfires uh, last year yeah. 75% of our region was burnt out through the those terrible bushfires um, those are things you don't forget in a hurry and they become a big part of the history of the place yeah no definitely definitely you um I read in an article when I was doing a bit of research for this that um 
you were one of the places that um, was like a safe haven for people from the fires as well? Yeah, we actually closed our entire operations for a couple of weeks and we became an evacuation centre. And we had uh, 40 or 50 families here and about 100 animals. Um, Probably a lot worse places to be an evacuation centre than a winery, I'd suggest. Oh, God, I can imagine my um, my boyfriend's auntie lives down in Jarvis Bay and I know that she was very stressed because she kind of lives on a farm. So I can imagine it was very, very stressful and very scary. It was an extraordinary time and, and yet <clears throat> there was more to come, wasn't there, with the floods and, mm. and the global pandemic. So in the end, it's just another thing that tests you on the journey of, of, of life, which seems to be what, what living in the country is is largely about. Yeah, no, but when, I mean, you guys were so busy when we came down, um, I think it was me and my friends and I came down in July, I want to say, and you guys were so busy. So it was good to see that you were still going and everyone was still keen to come to the winery. It's been fabulous. We've had wonderful community support. Uh, we make some nice wine, but I mean, lots of people make nice wine too. So it was um, it was nice to be able to share that at what was quite an interesting post-lockdown time. So let's talk a little bit about silos and sustainability as you have a lot of measures in place. Um, why is it so important for you to be a sustainable business? I think there's an ethical component and there's a moral dimension as well. Um, and, and I think that those have been talked about a lot and so we'll leave that to the side. I think from a business point of view, it just makes sense to be sustainable. If you're using lots of chemicals, yeah. you're losing lots of machinery time and labour and fuel uh, it just doesn't make sense from a business point of view as well. But people who are involved in the wine industry, uh, this is a bit of a generalisation, but, but people who are involved in the wine mm. industry have a strong sense of attachment to the land. Silos also is, is in a region which has a long and rich Indigenous history. And the conversation in Australia, I believe, has really fundamentally changed in the last 12 to 18 months when we look to our Indigenous history and what we can learn from it. So fire management practices, making sure that uh, resources are harvested sustainably, maintaining waterways, all those kind of mm. things are conversations we're now having in Australia. And I think if you are going to run an agricultural business, of which the wine industry is a big part, you have to have a sustainability focus for a business point of view and also to leave, I guess, that cliche, the place better than you found it in. No, definitely. I really like I really like that idea. Um, and you guys have so many sustainable measures. If someone hasn't visited the winery, what are some of the most obvious sustainable measures that you guys have taken? Well, I think the most visible ones that people would see is that uh, mm. we are carbon neutral for energy, so we're entirely solar powered on the estate. We have actually Australia's at the at this point in time. I'm sure it'll change, but at this point in time, we have the largest electric vehicle charging station in Australia. We charge 16 vehicles at a time uh, for our visitors. Yeah. Uh, we don't irrigate. Uh, we have um, repurposed all our waste uh, in really interesting and innovative ways. Our grape mark okay. goes to the dairy farmers here who use it as feed for cattle, which reduces methane emissions for them, and, and we're not burning it off. We've used our waste wine bottles uh, for glass, and the glass is actually used for road building, so we use it as um, aggregate for, for building roads and pipe beds. So it's on the demand side, so let's think about mm. energy, and it's on the, I guess, the supply side as well, using up. If you pick up our wine bottles, you'll see that our labels are recycled paper, 
Now, what's interesting about that is that that occurred in 2007. And as far as we can tell, we're one of the first wineries in the world to do that. Now, that's not going to, that's not going to save a rainforest. Let's not kid ourselves. But it's a start. And that's, that's how, how things change when you start small and, and, and grow bigger. The other thing is, you know, we were, I guess, one of the first people to start using low-carbon bottles. I should acknowledge there was lots of people who did it before us, but probably we were certainly amongst the first, I think. And uh, look, we were a founding member of Earth Hour. We're a founding mm. member of the Business Coalition on, on Climate Change. There's been things we've been involved with for a long time that we've been kind of... Uh, yeah. wanting to and not all of them have worked uh, let's let's be honest we've we thought some yeah. things were good ideas and, and they actually weren't uh, whereas other things have have really been part of our business like repurposing waste wine bottles recycled paper for labels etc turning back to the electric car um, vehicle charging station have more people discovered your cellar door because of this and where did that idea come from well we built australia's first what we believe we built australia's first electric car charging station outside of sydney metro in 2007 and that was something that we built ourselves you know scrambling through our um, high school textbooks to try and understand how these things might work and then using some local services to build that in place and so for the first three or four years we had you know maybe a car every couple of months or so uh, mm. then soon afterwards uh, tesla launched in australia and they approached us to put in some destination charges which we put in um, and we had two of those and then about three or four years ago we were approached to uh, bid for a large supercharging station so the next one along is about another 250 kilometers down the road here uh, okay. and the south and if you head north you're in sydney to get to the next one so it's quite a substantial facility and it largely uses renewable solar and wind power to charge people's cars electric vehicles you know it's, it's really about big data so if you're barreling down the highway and you've got 20 kilometers left on your car perhaps to charge it'll actually tell you to pull into silos uh what we've discovered is that um we're able to have we've met some amazing people uh, people who are really at the forefront of early adopters, they're being early adopters, and that has meant that um, we've been introduced to electric vehicles and they've been introduced to wine. So there you go. So it's perfect, perfect all round. Exactly. How long does it take to charge a car? Look, the, the ones that we built, you know, all those years mm. ago, it must be 14, 15 years ago, are astonishingly slow. You know, it would be, yeah. be 24 hours to charge your car. Oh, fully. wow. But the new ones that we've got in place, you'll charge your car to 80% of its capability in about 20 minutes. So I was talking to Peter Dillon from Handpicked Wines on the third episode, and we discussed the Sustainable Wine Growing Australia program. Is this something you're involved in too? Have you heard of it? So there's a number of programs around Australia around sustainability and certification, and they range from consumer side all the way, all the way back to supply side i guess we we've dabbled in a few of these and look they haven't really been for us not because uh the principles aren't ones we share we, we do share principles but a lot of these things require quite a substantial amount of investment in in, in paperwork and, and ongoing yeah. audits and certifications and certainly for small businesses businesses like ours that is in excess of what we're capable of, of doing 
So we have our own systems and tools here. They're all largely automated, which track, for example, our water consumption, our electricity consumption, fuel consumption, uh, estimated CO2 emissions and all those kind of things. And that's what we use to manage our operations. And really our benchmark yeah. is to produce more with less. So I think over the 14 years, we now produce about three to four times as much wine as we did when we started. Yeah. And our, things like our energy consumption has halved. Our um, pesticide consumption is down 90%. So in real oh, terms, wow. we, we're, we're driving probably a tenfold improvement for the same amount of resources. And that's kind of how we, we try and run our business uh, in a way that meets those principles but without yeah. having to do all the paperwork that, that's associated with it. Just going slightly off the questions, um, you guys are not organic, right? But would no, you we, be we, we're not organic. And organic is true organic, uh, yeah. is very rewarding, but it's also very challenging. Like, for yes. example, you have to have an exclusion. If you're going to do true organic, you should have an exclusion zone around your property. Um, exclusion mm. zones, you know, in a place where land costs $100,000 an acre, that's probably not something that you can you can do easily or, or do in a way that would be 100% compliant. So we are not organic and we're very clear yeah. about that, but we try and have a, as light a touch on the environment as we possibly can. As possible, yeah, because I know as well it takes three years to get certified, so it's a long process as well. Wow, I didn't know that. I know it took a long time, but I didn't realise it was three years. So when I first visited um, Silos Estate, you were talking about, you talked about the Silos Estate Foundation and how you have different charities and the tasting fee goes towards a charity and the customers can pick which charity it goes towards, and um, how do you pick the ones that you work with? So our foundation, I should be clear, is a foundation in name. It's not tax registered. Uh, we use yeah. it to funnel our, our donations. The tax registration piece is, is quite complex, but, but the money f flows directly to them. We support about 200 charities a year on average, yeah. but the three main ones are involved around education, domestic violence, and landmine clearing. And the education domestic violence we're actually personally involved with with those uh, mm. with those charities. On the former, um, something like a hundred plus students have been sent uh, to university in TAFE uh, who otherwise yeah. could not have afforded to go. On the domestic violence, uh, we fund a number of uh, services to, um, in our regions uh, from mm. the tasting fees that we. Yeah. Uh, the landmine clearing one is, is really a personal interest of, of both my wife and I. Uh, we have visited a number of these uh, countries where landmines are still a very insidious problem. And um, we've been able to get involved with a number of European-based charities who are involved in landmine clearing. Where did the idea come from for the foundation? Well, I think when we made the active decision to move to the country, we, we decided that mm. we would... Um, kind of have a purpose-driven organisation. That's probably a little bit of an overused term these days, but it describes what we wanted to do. And yeah. so the team that we have here is is fabulous and they all buy into and subscribe into the principles around not only do we create, uh, we believe, great wine, but mm. a great experience for people, but on top of that we also ensure that uh, our organisation uh, does more than just make wine but is 
yeah. great, great citizens in the communities that we live and work in. No, it's amazing. I love that idea. So I don't think I've seen any other winery do it. It's something a little bit different, which I really like. Yeah, look, it's it's a big part of our ethos and, and we're delighted to be able hmm. to do it. Can you tell me a little bit more about the wine scholarship program that you offer? Yeah, look, so we have a fabulous program down in our region, which uh, the, the um, TAFEs here have what's called a celebrity chef's evening. And we have yeah. as- astonishingly highly regarded chefs who come down, who give of their time for two or three days, and they train and educate the youth of our region into mm. lives outside our region and also into the food industry. Now, we have partnered yeah. with them and we do the same with wine. And so we've had a number of years where we've provided a wine scholarship. Now, with that, the students uh, receive about a week to two weeks with us over the course of a year, going okay. through the whole cycle of wine production from the day we harvest all the way through to the day that we sell. Oh, awesome. So, you know, picking, making, bottling, marketing, selling, um, and then on top of that, we actually uh, fund some further studies for them as well if they, they want to want to do so. And, uh, you know, our, our, I think we've had four or five winners so far uh, and um, all of them have gone on to bigger and better things. Uh, only two of them have, have maintained in the industry. Others have gone on to other things, but it's been yeah. part, fairly formative in part of, of their, their life's journey. No, that's amazing. And how do you pick who gets the scholarship? Uh, look, we don't pick the uh, okay. the educators do, and and we just uh, we fund and, and support it. Oh, amazing! No, I thought that was so interesting when I read that, so I definitely had to ask about it. Um, also, sorry, I'm going off topic a little bit again. What does a typical day look like for you at Silos Estate, if there is a typical day? <laughs> Look, I think if you asked any winemaker what does a typical day look like, uh, apart from the rhythm of the seasons around, you know, harvest time or or, um, or manufacturing time, perhaps after you've made the wine and you're doing bench trials and mm. bottling and maybe vineyard maintenance around the time of pruning and all those kind of things, th- there really isn't a typical day, uh, particularly if you're involved in the whole value chain, as we are. There are some yeah. wineries who are just involved in perhaps growing grapes or, or perhaps just making the wine. Um, but, you know, the, the couple of thousand small cellar doors in Australia that exist, they do everything, everything from making the wine to knocking on restaurant doors to distribute the wine. So, you know, uh, it, perhaps it might be what is the next big thing I need to do today, which I didn't yeah. need to do yesterday and can't wait till tomorrow. So yeah. <laughs> that's, that's the way I suspect most of the uh, winemakers in the 2,000-odd small cellar doors in Australia would, would, would say. Yeah, definitely. Um, what grape varieties are you currently go- growing and what's the difference between the wines under Silos Estate and the wines under Wiley's Creek? Look, to be honest, a small winery like us, we're growing far too many varieties. We're growing seven varieties. <laughs> um, and oh, wow. I, that, that's a hangover from the previous owners, and we've been gradually yeah. slimming them down and we'll probably migrate to four. Uh, and the okay. four main ones that we'll probably focus on are Malbec uh, and Shiraz, and in the yeah. white it'll be Sav Blanc and Semillon. Now, in the oh. whites, 
we also have Chardonnay at the moment. And in the reds, we also have Cabernet. Really, things like uh, Cabernet and Chardonnay do it a little bit tougher. We're a maritime climate here. Uh, yeah. And so uh, Sauv Blanc with very small, tight bunches and Semillon with very big bunches with, with thick skins uh, give you a better mm. chance. Uh, and in the reds, the Malbec and Shiraz share those same similar characteristics. Look, we have two brands here, and, and Wiley's yeah. Creek is grown elsewhere. It's it's not grown okay. here. We also grow in Adelaide Hills in Ranella, near, oh, awesome. uh, near Ranella. Uh, we also grow a little bit in Yarra Valley, and we just partner with people to, to grow and make the wines in those places. And the real reason we do that is the climate here is not conducive to some of the things that we want to make. Uh, and yeah. a good example is we make a sparkling, and that's sparkling. I mean, you just you just don't get the right kind of acid and flavour profiles in, in a maritime climate. So yeah. uh, we, we grow those in Yarra Valley. And that's the main Perfect. difference between the two. Oh, awesome. What's, um, what grapes grow best in a maritime climate? Well, here I might do a shout-out to our region, which is the Shoalhaven region, and yeah. a grape variety that is grown by all the other winemakers here, which actually I don't grow, is something mm -hmm. called Chambesson. And Chambesson is a French hybrid that was brought into Australia, I, I believe, by the Casella family at Port Macquarie, which would share a similar okay. similar um, climate profile to us, perhaps a touch mm -hmm. warmer. Um, and, you know, they have very thick skins and uh, they're very resilient in humid, wet conditions, which is what a maritime climate tends to give you. I don't grow it okay. because I, personally I don't particularly like it. There's nothing wrong with it. It's just not something that I enjoy. Um, mm. But what it means is if you get adverse weather conditions uh, in terms of uh, wet weather, it still works very well here. Um, and so um, my colleagues in the industry, pretty much no matter how bad the season is, they're always harvesting something, whereas if I yeah. have a bad season, uh, I tend not to get very much because the weather's gone against me. Don't leave just yet. We'll be right back after this short break. Do you ever open a bottle of wine when you're hosting a party or just want a couple of glasses at home and for some reason you don't actually finish it? I'm definitely guilty of that and it's so frustrating seeing good wine go to waste. Luckily, I recently discovered the most perfect solution and I'm so excited to share it with you all. Today's episode is brought to you by WineSave, the all-natural wine preserver helping your open bottles of wine last longer and stay fresher so you can enjoy drinking them for weeks instead of days after opening. Made from pure argon gas and invented right here in Australia, WineSafe is a must for any wine lover and entertainer, having already protected over 10 million bottles of wine around the world. All it takes is a quick spray in your open bottle, seal it back up, and you have an extra peace of mind when it comes to savouring your wine. Try it for yourself and save 15% off with my code 2021 Caris 15 spelt C-H-A-R-I-S, available to purchase at winesave.com.au. Happy sipping. What does, I don't know if I've actually tried it. What does it taste like? What's it most similar to? Now, there's a question. I, I would have <laughs> trouble describing it. Um, it's, it's a French hybrid that's actually used uh, in France as a blending grape. So it has quite okay. strong colour. It has very strong colour, uh, kind of purpley, uh, purpley red rather than purpley black. It tends to be, it, it can be a bit lighter. And so often people add tannin into the kind of the production process, either by uh, oak aging or, or adding tannin. I've had some really interesting, funky Chambersons in a sparkling context. 
Uh, okay. So there's, uh, I know there's um, somebody down here that makes a sparkling Chomperson that they do with a partner up in the Hunter Valley. Um, okay. But uh, look, I'm not doing well, am I? As a winemaker, <laughs> I should be able to give you good word pictures. <laughs> I, I struggle a little bit with, with it because it's, it's kind of a slightly different taste to what people use in terms of, you know, talking about, you know, blackberries or plums or, or yeah. like that. It's, it's not quite in that in that kind of league for that red style but it's it some people swear by it they, they absolutely love yeah. it and that's their drink of choice what do you think the wine industry will see more or less of in 2021 look i think the wine industry is going through some macro changes in australia clearly yeah. something that's exercising everybody's mind is is climate change and mm-hmm. uh we have seen over the last 10 or so years a steady migration out of the hot regions around south australia and and probably the riverlands to increasing number of wineries being established in places like tasmania and and mornington peninsula i think that's a trend that's going to continue i I think there is a trend that's occurring to european style winemaking so historically you know we've been known for big bold high alcohol i think that's changing and you're seeing a lot of newer styles and varieties coming in and they are no longer new. I mean, even 10 years ago, mm. the notion about Pinot Grigio, Pinot Gris, Nobilo, Tempranillo, uh, these are now starting to appear more and more in, in bottle shops and they tend to have a, a more European rather than a sort of 80s, 90s Australian style. And, look, I think there's a kind of a macro issue, isn't there, where a substantial portion of our harvest and production was heading to China. Now, mm, yeah. the Chinese market having essentially effectively closed its doors to Australia. Uh, mm. What does that mean for colleagues in the wine industry about whether that they'll be able to uh, find new markets? Does that mean that Australian wine drinkers are in for a great couple of years with great wines yeah. at a much cheaper price? Or does it mean that we just look to fill uh, other markets to take Australian mm. wine? Look, these are, these are big questions which I think lots of people are searching the answers to at the moment. What, do you have any plans in the works for Silas Estate for 2021? Look, our our plans continue to revolve around our sustainability focus. So we're looking at uh, driving uh, even bigger changes in our energy consumption and energy production. We are looking at expanding our operations. We have a very peculiar situation down here where we lost a, a, a substantial portion of our vineyard to uh, a highway expansion here. So we lost about 6,500 ah, square yes. metres of vine. So we will have to replace and renew. And, uh, look, I think the, the other thing is at a, at a much smaller level, we face the challenges that the bigger operators do. You know, what does the China situation mean for us? What does mm. climate change mean for us? In fact, in the last um, four years, we've experienced three years of drought, three one-in-20-year floods, and probably the worst bushfires in the last couple of hundred years. Um, that's yeah. a, that seems to suggest that we have to expect more and more climate-related challenges. And how do we make ourselves resilient to that? We can't change the climate. We need to no. adapt to what's, what's going on. And, and that will exercise a fair bit of our minds, I think, over the next few years. No, definitely. There's definitely 
a lot to think about and a lot of changes happening, especially with climate change as well. I feel like it's the way people were growing the grapes and the way people were making the wine might have to change a little bit. So just going off topic again, sorry. Um, Because you have such a big sustainable focus, what are your thoughts on the natural wine industry? Because they're having natural wines are sort of having a bit of a cut, not a comeback even there, sort of it's such a growing part of the industry. What are your thoughts on it? I think it's fabulous. You know, I think that's one of the things I really love about wine, which is setting aside that kind of black art, very officious and priggish part of our industry, which Mm. thankfully is becoming less and less, where people swirl the wine and claim that they can smell the disappointment in it because the person who picked it was named Nigel and his girlfriend's left him and all those kind of nonsensical things. Um, Yeah. Wine that you like, I may not enjoy, but I like something else. I get introduced to stuff that other people like and I go, wow, you know, not something I would normally done, but I really like it. And and on and on it goes. It's such a personal thing with so many things that it brings to the table. I was having a wine, oh, must have been a few few weeks ago, and for some reason I can remember clear as day, I'm about six years old sitting in a classroom in where in the country I grew up, which is India. Mm. Now I just I need to clarify, I wasn't drinking wine at the age of six <laughs> sitting in a classroom in, the classroom, in India. Yeah. But but I remember smelling it and for some reason it triggered this memory. Now if you'd asked me to recall the classroom at the age of six and what I was doing, I would have had no recollection of it at all yeah, uh, or very vague recollections. And yet this, uh, you know, triggered a very deep sense of memory that I've obviously retained. I love that about wine. You know, people, yeah. people talk about memories of the event or memories that it takes them back to. Uh, I love the, the history and the, the passion and the love that goes into it. This, this is, this is an industry which is a business. I mean, look, wine is a serious business, but it's not a serious drink. And I think yeah. that that um, the drink gives you so many wonderful aspects of our industry, the people you meet, uh, the memories you have and the memories you create. Yeah, no, definitely. I love that wine can sort of bring back memories like that. I think it's really nice. It's kind of the same with, I guess, if someone has a meal or eats something, then they also get that memory as well. Um, what wines are you drinking right now going off that? Now, I have to confess, I haven't been drinking very much lately at all. My, I'm an older <laughs> father. My kids are back at school yeah. and I seem to be uh, rushing from netball to camps to soccer yeah. to all sorts of things. So uh, th- your kids bouncing up and down on bed at 5.30 in the morning is probably not entirely conducive to having enjoyed a nice bottle of red before. But, yes. look, in general, I'm, I'm really enjoying some of the newer varieties that I'm seeing around that, mm. I'm, that I'm trialling. Um, I am enjoying the lighter style wines. This is not something I really used to enjoy. Um, okay. I, I, I like the bolder, uh, I mean, I'd use the word charismatic, but, but, you know, the kind of ones that we were known for in Australia. <clears throat> Excuse yeah. me, the heavier Shirazes, the, the big, big Chardonnays. But um, some of the uh, lighter European-style wines, I, I had a Tempranillo recently, which I was uh, quite taken aback by. Um, hmm. is, is it ridiculous to say it reminded me a little bit of a high-quality Pinot? Maybe. I, I mean, I don't know. But <laughs> it, it was that was the sense I got away with it. And um, yeah. I was... 
I really enjoyed that. So I wonder if my tastes are changing because I'm becoming a little bit older or whether yeah. actually um, uh, I'm preferring the more subtle ones. Certainly when I look at our visitors now, there is a kind mm -hmm. of a movement away from heavier to lighter and yeah. from bold to subtle. Um, so I don't think I'm, I'm alone in that. No, definitely not, especially with people being more into the lower alcoholic wines as well. I feel like, yeah, people are kind of stepping away from those really, really alcoholic, bold flavours and going to more of the lighter, less alcoholic wines. So, no, I completely agree with that. I'd agree with you as well. Touching on, um, you have an alpaca farm on the property, which um, I love. And I also read that you're the largest, you host the largest outlet on the South Coast for local alpaca, alpaca producers, sorry. Um, where did the idea for the alpacas come from? Is that to do with the sustainability or was that just a random idea? Look, it is to do with sustainability. Um, yeah. it, uh, we carry livestock here, as most farms do, I guess. Uh, but mm. we did a lot of research to try and understand what would have the lowest impact on the environment. And to give you some examples about alpacas, you know, a dairy cow will drink, I don't know, 60 to 70 litres of water a day, an alpaca okay. will drink three or four. So if you're talking about one of the driest continents on earth, an animal that drinks uh, a 20th of the water per day mm. uh, makes more sense. They have yes. uh, splayed feet rather than uh, hooves. So they have a very gentle touch on the land. When you watch a cow or a sheep eat, you watch them, and when they eat, they kind of rip it out of the ground a little bit, and I'll pack a nipple yeah. it like a lawnmower. Um, so okay. it maintains the pasture and maintains the structure. Look, there's no nice way to say this, but cows and sheep, they uh, they burp and they fart a lot, and they account yeah. for uh, something like, I believe, uh, maybe best not to quote me on this, but I think, I've, I've read and heard about 50% of our greenhouse gases in Australia through meat, whereas alpacas are far more efficient ruminants. So for a variety of reasons, uh, they are far more sustainable from an environmental point of view. On top of that, Karis, I have to tell you, I'm a complete <laughs> sissy. I'm a city boy. So dealing with, <laughs> a, with a 70 kilo angry alpaca, of which we have very yeah. few, is much more palatable to me than dealing with a one and a half ton angry bull. And uh, yes. given my uh, general uh, wussiness from having grown up in a city, that, that, that fits my uh, bravery profile perfectly down to the ground. I know you said you're not drinking that much at the moment, but do you have a, um, a favourite food and wine pairing? Because you have a restaurant on site as well. We, we do. And look, I, I probably don't have a favourite, but I would say, you know, the thing that I, we always talk about with our guests is, you know, wine is kind of a, a social lubricant and our pairing mm. with wine is is good company. That's that's really what we say. How often have I had a fabulously highly regarded bottle of wine with company that wasn't that fabulous and I have very little <laughs> to say <laughs> about it? And conversely, we've had lovely but, but, but cheaper wine with great company and, you know, mm. nice food and we have very fond memories of it. But look, if I was to be even, if I was to answer the question a bit more directly, down on the south coast here, we have fabulous, fresh, vibrant local produce. Having mm. our Sav Blanc with freshly harvested oysters just off Greenwell Point here is a slightly spiritual experience, I would suggest. Yeah. Uh, conversely, you know, having uh, a twelve-hour slow-cooked 
alpaca shank with mm. one of our reds is something you don't forget quickly oh, no, with, awesome. with the uh, open fire and yeah so i think it it's it's horses for courses coming up to our very last question thank you so much as well for joining me today it's been so interesting um this is probably the hardest question but from the wines that you produce which would you take to a dinner party a barbecue and a picnic look i think let's start with the easy one which is the you know quintessential australian sort of psyche which is the barbecue we make an astonishing uh, sparkling shiraz here we use quite premium Mm. shiraz grapes i have to tell you slightly frightening it's it's about 14 percent alcohol so it is one of the higher alcohols but you get berries and cranberries on the mid palate it's a lovely rich red that we've made into a sparkling uh in a kind of chamont method uh that would be my number one choice to take yeah. to a barbecue. It'd also be my number two choice and it'd also be my number three choice. I mean, it's sparkling shirts, <laughs> that's the winner. In terms of a picnic, well, look, if it's a, if it's a summer's picnic sitting out, uh, you're going to go for, I would, I would suggest a slightly lighter style wine. Uh, we do make Semillon Chardonnay, an unusual blend, which is a slightly heavier yeah. style, or if you want something a bit lighter, a, a Semillon Sauvignon Blanc. How many people make Semillon Sauvignon Blancs, I think, uh, you see pictures of it with cavemen as, as part of the <laughs> first wines that they ever make. Look, it's a bit cliched, but it works. The acidity of the semillon yeah. balances out the fruit of the, the sap block. And in terms of a dinner party, well, what dinner party are you having? If it's if it's a big wintry one, we have a duck's nut Shiraz, which we're quite well known for. If it's a yes. summery dinner party, we have a Provence-style rosé called a Cat's Meow Rosé, named after our... <laughs> Uh, original resident cat here and uh, it's a beautiful peach orange color you get watermelon strawberries good acidity and we're quite well known for that so there you go i cheated i didn't give you three (laughs) i gave you about five or six but really it covers all manner of sins doesn't it Yes, no, that's perfect as well. A lot of people have been saying this question's really helpful because if they are going to a dinner party, sometimes people have no idea what to take. So people are finding it very, very helpful. But no, I just want, and I love your rosé as well. I actually have a bottle of it in my wine fridge. Um, So yes, no, I just wanted to say thank you so much for joining me this morning. It's been so interesting and it's been great to get an insight into a sustainable winery. But yes, thank you so much. And I'm glad we could arrange another time and get the interview done well thank you for having me it's been lovely to chat about what we do here and uh, we look forward to hosting you again sometime soon thank you so much for listening please rate review subscribe and share with your friends i'll see you next week for another closer look into the wine industry now go and grab that glass of wine you deserve it